0: You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. well good morning how's everybody doing good morning. Good morning. good morning good morning. oh thanks everybody's awake all right well <laughs> man if this if you were here last week thanks for coming back and if this is your first time to Redemption city we're just super glad that you're here and we're a brand new church plant this is our second week and we're so excited that that you are here and as we begin this journey um man i'm just praying i've been praying all week to see uh, what the lord might do in and through this community and Honestly, eventually to the ends of the world. I don't believe that's too big of a place to pray for. So I'm excited about that. And so we're in a nine-week series. It's called the DNA series. Um, And in that series, last week, we looked first at what it means to be a new community that's specifically marked by the gospel, right? And the gospel message that because of Jesus and the blood that was shed, we have an opportunity to be in a right relationship with the creator of the universe. And our stories without Christ, right, is a story filled with a lot of sadness and and isolation and um, and ultimately death. But with Jesus and with the gospel message, we have an opportunity to be in community for our stories to become God's story. And that's good news. Amen. And so this week we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be a gospel-centered community that's marked by grace. And we're going to take a deep dive into that shortly. And then if you look on the screen... Over the course of the, um, the following um, six to seven weeks, we'll be looking at what it means to be a community that's marked. By generosity. Like, what does that look like? How does how do we live that out according to the Bible? And then what does it mean to be marked um, by gathering? Being a, a community that comes together, that prioritizes the Word of God, that prioritizes community. Um, there's a million things that could, we could be doing on a Sunday morning, especially in this beautiful— I'm originally from California, and Oregon's weather in the summer is amazing. And there's so much. Look at the beautiful—I mean, the scenery out there. But we, by faith, are saying that this is the time that we are stewarding for God, right? Right? And then we're going to look at what does it mean to be marked by going? Right, So we come, we gather, we learn the things of God, we study the word of God, we submit our lives to the word of God. But then what does that mean when we now activate that and live that out? How do we live out the gospel? How does it not terminate just on you? And you begin to be a vessel and a light for the kingdom. And then I'm really excited. And then we go in on July 14th. And, and what is The vision of family. What does God have to say about the family unit for the husband and the wife? And perhaps if you have children, how does your family become a representation of all that God has called your family to be? That's going to be an exciting time. Then we're going to be moving into the vision of godly manhood. Um, what does that look like for us to be men after God's own heart? We, look, we, we know in Scripture, it tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And so what can we learn about what that means for our lives, men? And I'm excited about that journey. I'm excited about what that means for us as men. Very soon, we're going to be getting together as for some men's discipleship opportunities. And so if you are um, basically above the age of 18, I'm talking to you. And, I, and I'm so excited to be able to get to know you more. Um, Then we move into the vision of godly womanhood, and that's going to be an amazing time. What does God have to say about how he has uniquely wired and created you and what he's called you to do with a new story? You had a story, but then God gave you a new story. What is that story that God's given you? And then finally, on August 4th, we're going to um, end the DNA series, right? The DNA of our church, um, what which DNA means the values and characteristics with the vision of covenant family. And that's where it's going to be really exciting. And we're going to talk about what it means to become a member of Redemption City Church after we've been on this journey. Um, and you're going to have an opportunity to hear more about that, to lean in and to decide if God might be calling you um, to make this your home church and what that means for you. And so that's going to be an exciting time. And so um, if you have your Bibles, and I really, really hope you do, um, you can turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to be looking at that briefly in a, in a moment. And if you don't have your own Bible, we do have Bibles um, in the windowsills, those um, t- turquoise colored Bibles. And so feel free to use one um, during our service. And we just ask that you would just um, place them right back um, where, they, where you picked them up from. And so you know, we'll be using the English Standard Version Bible as our primary translation here at Redemption City. Occasionally, um, I'll, I'll use the NLT or King James in different versions. But the reason why we use the ESC version here at Redemption City as our primary text is we believe it has the best combination of a word-for-word translation of the Bible that's also readable. Um, for the average person coming to church. And so that that combination, we believe ESV does the best. And so um, we're going to pray, so let's bow our heads and let's invite God into um, everything we're doing. Father, I uh, I thank you this morning, and I thank you for these men and these women and these amazing children, Lord. And even those who perhaps are watching this sermon online um, at a later date. And Lord, give us all the desire to listen well this morning. There's so much that goes on in our week. There's so much, Lord, that's pulling our attention. We just ask that we would focus this morning. Lord, I thank you for just this opportunity to gather together and to talk all about you. And I pray that you would stir our hearts and that you would stir our minds um, towards the right things, heavenly things, pure and praiseworthy things, Jesus. And I hope that you give us eyes to see and that you give us ears to hear because the things we're talking about this morning are as deep as eternity And they're as wide as the universe. Don't let us us miss the forest of your word, which is so true for the trees of meaningless nuances, God. Don't let that happen. Therefore, I pray that you would help us to rest in your grace and that you would let us reside in your love and that you might let us hear the gospel and that you would empower us, Lord, empower us this morning to digest exactly what you would have us to have this morning. For I believe that so many of us, Lord, especially those who have been in the church a long time, we have a tendency, Lord, to grow callous, Lord, at the repetition of church culture and sermons over the years, God. And we've... Sometimes we forget, Lord, that every single word and adjective and pronoun and prepositional phrase is inspired by you and is transformative for our lives. And we want to interact with that gospel message of your son, Jesus, and everything within this Bible as supremely worthy and valuable um, of our time. And so we invite you into everything we're doing. Stir up our hearts, stir up our affections. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. You know, when I think about my journey with Jesus, I automatically think about grace. I mean, if it wasn't for grace, none of us would have this relationship with Jesus, right? I mean, I would even go this far. I absolutely know for a fact that it's God's grace that redeemed my story. And it's God's grace that I continue to see play out in my life. And it's God's grace that I get to be a witness of as I see it play out in other people's lives that continues to sustain my relationship with Jesus. You know, we make that decision in Christ and we, we give our, our lives, our hearts to Him, but then we need to endure. We need to do what the book of Hebrews says when it's about running our race to the end. And I believe God's grace is the fuel that allows us to do that but what is grace because grace is one of those words right like grace and and mercy and redemption and salvation and justification and all these words that especially in church culture we use them all the time and we say them all the time and they become so normalized that we actually don't have a firm foundation of what these words mean and so I spent this past week really thinking about how could I put together a definition that's consumable for everyone here today? And so here's Grace Explained, and it's going to be on the screen right now. Um, The first part of the definition is for all of us, but then the second part is really for our children. So, hey, kids in here, if you're 7 years old and 6 years old or 8 years old or 10 years old, I want you to work hard today. God wants to speak a message to you. You're not too young. You can focus in, and God will help you to understand what's happening today. All right, so here's Grace Explained. Grace is an expression of God's love. Manifest it through his unmerited favor towards man. Grace is categorically unearnable. It's essentially God giving to us that which we do not deserve nor can earn, but yet it's something we so desperately want. So in other words, you can't do anything to earn that grace but it's something that God gives. How does that play out? It's things like love. We don't deserve God's love, but he gives that to us, right? Or it plays out with his patience or his affections or this glorious gift called salvation or the gift of repentance. That's a grace from God, the ability to have a conflict in your heart and then for that to reside in a way where you know that you're not right with God. And then the desire to get right with God is a gift of grace. So Think about this for the children in here. You know, when you're doing something really bad at home and you know you're in trouble, and then you're like, why did I do that? And this is the worst day to get in trouble because it's my birthday and I wanna have fun. And, and you remember that your mom and dad said like, if you do that, you're not gonna be able to have your friends for the night. And you know you screwed up and then you messed up. And you're like, man, now my day's gonna be ruined. But then your friends still come over and you're like, mom, I thought you said, if I did this wrong thing, Dad, I thought you said, if I did this wrong thing, that I wouldn't have a sleepover. And they say, we're going to extend to you grace. So grace is something that, you, that you, really, you really don't deserve, but is given to you anyway. And that's what God does for us. He extends our grace and he provides us grace, even though we don't deserve it. But usually when I hear the word grace, it's usually combined with the word mercy. Grace and mercy, grace and peace. What is Mercy. Well, mercy is also an, uh, um, an expression of God's love from the opposite side. So here's, here's mercy explained. All right, we need both these words. Mercy is also an expression of God's love from the opposite side of grace. You see, mercy is God withholding from us various realities, here we go, that we absolutely do deserve because of our sin but we emphatically do not want it, <laughs> okay? Mercy is an incredible gift of forgiveness and pardoning. So in other words, mercy, mercy when God extends mercy, because a lot of times we use grace and mercy interchangeable, they're not the same. Grace is us receiving from God. Grace is receiving from God something that we don't deserve. When God is extending his mercy to us, it's him withholding something that we do deserve, but he's, but he's pardoning us. He's forgiving us. So the combination of God's grace and God's mercy is so, is so central to the gospel message. And so for here at Redemption City, we want our church to be a community that is marked by grace and mercy. We want to be a people group because of what God has done in our own lives that are extending a type of love. All right. A type of a a type of opening of our homes, even when maybe people don't deserve that. And then we want to be a community that is withholding judgment and condemnation on people's lives as our heavenly father has withheld judgment on us. Does that make sense? Amen. And so grace and mercy are talked about all the way it permeates throughout the scriptures from Genesis all the way through Revelations, honestly. But we're going to look at probably one of the most important um, areas, in my opinion, of explaining God's grace because God, the creator of the universe, is going to speak for himself. And let me tell you something. He, most of the Bible is God's inspired word. So he's speaking through different individuals. We have very few passages where the Lord, our God, speaks for himself. And so when we get an opportunity to hear God for himself, we want to lean in and we want to listen with intentionality, right? And so if you have your Bibles open, We're going to look at Exodus chapter 34, verses... Six through seven. So here's some context. I want to take you on a journey. Um, Lest we just cherry pick a verse without a context and miss the whole point. And so what's happening before we even interact with this verse on the screen is that Moses is now going up onto the Mount Sinai for the second time. And that's critical to understand. See, Moses went up on the mountain the first time because God had written the commandments on two tablets. But Moses had broken, he broke those tablets because the people of Israel had broken their covenant with God. That's critical to understand. The people of God, after everything that God had done to pull them out of Egypt, to free them from bondage, they broke the covenant with God. And Moses, in anger, broke the tablets to symbolize that you've broken your covenant with God. And as Moses rebuked the people of Israel, they repented. And for our children here, repentant means when you so radically acknowledge you're wrong or your sin that you turn in the opposite direction of what you were doing wrong and you turn back to God saying, I want to do the right thing. Okay? And so, as the people of Israel repented, God had grace and mercy on the people of Israel. And so now Moses is going up to the mountain and God is getting ready to write on a second set of tablets. And he comes down in what's called Shekinah glory, right? And so this Shekinah glory, this cloud that God comes down in, you know, we see that a couple of different times in scriptures. We see it in Exodus chapter 19, actually a little bit before, um, as this Shekinah glory cloud is just walking with the people and guiding them. Um, this Shekinah glory cloud is also seen in Second Chronicles chapter 7 um, when it's, it fills Solomon's temple, if you know that story, with glory. Um, there's, a, there's many more. I'm going to share one more, though. Um, we see Shekinah glory also um, at the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, right? And when he presents and he makes it known fully and finally that this is my son and he is Lord your God. And so, whenever Shekinah glory, this cloud comes down, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, something that we don't want to miss. And so, here goes, here's God. He, he's coming down, he's descending in the Shekinah glory cloud. He's on this mountain with Moses and he declares these words. For himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, all three different things, but who will by no means clear the guilty, my God. Let's read that again, translating what we've just learned about merciful and graciousness, right? The Lord, the Lord, a God filled with the capacity and desire to withhold from us what we deserve. The Lord, the Lord, God, so quick to provide for us that which we do not deserve. He does that because he's slow to anger is what he's communicating to you and I this morning. He's able to have slow anger, be slow to anger because he's abounding in such a steadfast love. He's faithful to us when we're not faithful to him. And he does this for the multitudes. But here's the beautiful thing that only God can do. And so as he's loving us radically, as he's providing this grace to us so supremely, he's by no means clearing the guilty. That's profound. So there's really two primary atmospheres that we, as the people of God, get to experience the atmosphere of grace, all right? There's two primary ways. There's many ways, but we can really funnel them into these two categories. One is God's grace through the atmosphere of Scripture and communion with Him. I want you to repeat after me. God's grace through the atmosphere of Scripture and communion with Him. So, when I went through this, as I'm still going through this, but as I've been going through this journey of suffering, and if you don't know, I have a lot of different disabilities that I'm still working through, I have experienced so much of God's grace through the atmosphere of the Word of God. I can't tell you how many times when I couldn't lift myself out of my bed and my wife, who was trained by the physical therapy team to cross my arms over, then put her hand behind my back and then to lift me up and to help me sit up and and to feel so lonely and despondent, but to have the Word of God to be my counselor, to be my best friend. As I would interact with different stories in the gospel, God's grace would just permeate all over the text. And I will be reminded of his love for me as I watch Jesus walk amongst the people and extend that grace to others. But that requires you to be in your Bible. (laughs) And I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Are you spending time in the word of God to experience the atmosphere of his grace? No, like, no, really. Are you spending time experiencing the grace of God in the atmosphere of scripture? The Bible is one of the primary ways that God wants to interact with us. If you want to know, I hear people say all the time, I just want to know what God thinks. I just want to know what God says. I can't tell you how many men that I meet with that are, Pastor Brandon, I, 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 I'm struggling to lead my family. I'm struggling to know what's right from wrong. I don't, sh- should I take the promotion? Should I not take the promotion? Should I get married this month? Or should I wait for eight more months? Or should I, how, do I, how do I confess this area where I've been sinning? You know with you know with my spouse you know um can, can, can you give me the word of the lord what does god have to say about i mean so so much of the point of why we have the lifeway christian bookstores and online um googling and it's, it's because we're searching for the word of the lord we want to know what god says well here's the thing god's thoughts are in the word of god so if you want to know the heart of god you need to know the thoughts of god and if you want to know the thoughts of god You need to interact with the scriptures because the scriptures represent the thoughts of God. Therefore, you become more knowledgeable about the heart of God. So that's how we experience God's grace. The second atmosphere where we experience God's grace is through the atmosphere of people and through life situations. Repeat after me. God's grace. You can do better than that. God's grace through the atmosphere of people. and life situations. situations. That's better. You gotta wake up. It's a beautiful day, right? And so we experience God's grace so many times through people and life situations. I've experienced um, some of the biggest moments, um, tremendous moments of grace through my marriage (laughs) by being a failure. (laughs) And the fact that my wife continues to um, be faithful with me and, and forgiving um, of, of the areas where I fall short in. And, and there's actually no more beautiful picture, of, in my opinion, of God's grace through people than in the Institute of Marriage. It's a daily walk of, you know, you know, outdoing each other. I want to provide you grace. No, I want to provide you grace. I want to extend mercy. No, I want to extend mercy. And, and it's a beautiful thing when done rightly. And let me tell you, when it's not being done rightly, Marriage is chaotic. And I think that represents life too. When we don't have grace and we don't have mercy permeating over our lives, life doesn't work. And God knows that. That's why he is the supreme example of that. And he sent his son Jesus down with a gospel message to proclaim that. And so um, (laughs) grace and mercy, two things. God defines it, book of Exodus, for himself. He breaks it down, how he's slow to anger, how he has, he's he's abounding in steadfast love. He's gonna be faithful to us, but he's gonna hold the fact that, hey, we're still gonna, we gotta deal with this guilt thing, right? We gotta deal with this this sin issue. And so how do, where do we look to in that? And that's where we're gonna go to John. And so in a moment, not yet, we're gonna be turning to John chapter seven. So if you have your Bibles, you can start to turn there. And it's gonna be towards the end of your Bible. Or you can, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you can use the table of contents in the beginning of your book. And we're going to be in John chapter at the end of John chapter 7 in just a moment. John chapter 7. Uh, the, the, the John in the Gospels. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <laughs> that one. Alright, but now here, here's the thing. That's my son, guys. Alright. Um, and so b- before we go there, um, God's grace is, is really nothing like how we extend grace. My wife gives grace very, very well, and I try to extend that back, and I've experienced moments even with um, Pastor Jack as we're having our moments where he'll extend grace to me because I'm just being, you know, maybe not agreeable about something or difficult and or vice versa, right? But it's really a, a really cheap version of God's grace, like like, Jack's version of giving me grace is just nothing like God's version. And my version of extending grace to Jack is nothing compared to it. And, and, but God's grace is perfect. I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Something about with God's grace. See, for us, we have these two issues when we extend grace. Because we're, we're called in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, that we're referred to as the natural man, right? So here's one problem with the way that we extend grace as the natural men or the natural women, all right? Our sinful, our, our, with our, the sin that's kind of indwelling in us. We all know at the core of us that we are falling short. And we know that we have sin in our lives. And so it's easier for us to extend grace. Think about this. It's easier for us to extend grace to someone else because we know we need to have grace. It's kind of like, I should be extending you grace because I need grace in return. Does that make sense? Here's another reason why we extend grace and mercy much easier um, or in a different way than God does. Because we don't don't see all things. We don't see all things. I wonder what would happen if you knew the full story to some of the people you've extended mercy and grace to. There are people that you have extended grace to. There are people that you have extended mercy to, and you know only the tip of the iceberg. And if you knew every single thing in their closet, if you knew their deepest, darkest sins, all, when I say people, I'm talking about you and me. If everyone knew the full spectrum of what is inside your closet, I think it would be a little bit harder to extend that mercy and grace. We've all done things in life that we're super ashamed of. And we hope that uh, we never have to deal with those things again. But here's why God's grace is so perfect. This is good news. This is, this is the gospel message. Look, God is not motivated by his own sinfulness. So when God is extending grace, it's perfected. Because he's not coming out of a root of, I have sinned, therefore I want to forgive you of your sin. He's perfect, blameless, and holy, yet he extends grace. He's not enabled to extend grace by his ignorance. Oh, I don't think you're, I don't think you're listening some this morning. He's not enabled to do that because he's ignorant. He knows the full spectrum of your sin. Hello, I'm talking about not just the things you do, the things that you think that are wrong and faulty and filled with pride and selfish ambition, yet he extends grace. So God's grace is not like man's grace. He is holy and righteous. Um, he's not struggling with his moral compass to know how to weave in the degrees of, of, okay, well, this is like a little sin, and it wasn't that No, it's sin to God, and it's horrible, and it's, and it's worth death to God. But He extends, He extends grace. We get an amazing example, and this is, we're going to marinate right here for the rest of our sermon in John chapter 7 with Jesus extending grace and mercy. With holding intention, not releasing us, in the wrong ways from our sin and this is the story of a woman caught in adultery and so it starts off in John chapter 7 verse 53 this is the gospel according to John All right, this is Jesus' beloved this is um, the disciple that we associate as just really knowing not just the story of God but the heart of God he walked intimately with Jesus he was beloved by Jesus he had one of the um, he, he actually had the, the least painful death of all the disciples. Right, most of them it was gory, it was terrible. Um, Peter didn't like actually when he found out about the differences between how he was going to end and John. And then Jesus dealt with that too, but that's okay. That's the story for another day. Um, John chapter seven, verse fifty-three. It starts off and it says, "They went each to his own house." Ah, here we are again in church, starting off with with a part of the passage. We don't have context for what's going on. So, let's, so let's, um, let's talk about that. So just the, just the day before, there had been a big dispute um, amongst the people of God, and they're all arguing, and Jesus comes in, and he confronts them, and doing what Jesus does so well, he holds all these things in tension, he's answering their questions, and the people all kind of scatter back to their own home. So, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, said exactly what needed to be said in the moment of the division of these people, and they all separate to their own homes. Kind of, kind of, probably a little bit grumbling and mumbling, like, ah, that sounds really wise. And then they're going to come back and argue again with them another day. Okay? So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. How many remember that Jesus doesn't have a home? Right? There's implications there, too, but we'll be here all day. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. Hey, there's something right there. I can't help it. When I'm reading the word of God, there's a million things that we can, get, we can get distracted rightly in. But I just want to say right here, early in the morning. You're going to see that all the way throughout the scripture. Start to pay attention when you're reading the Bible. Early in the morning. Early in the morning, Jesus did this. Early in the morning, this happened. Early in the morning, he called Moses up to the mountain and the Shekinah glory came. Hey, men, women, start your days with God early in the morning. Before you get on your phones, before you do anything, interact with the creator of the universe. Invite him into your day. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. That is serious. Just the day before, they're arguing, they're disputing, they're trying to catch him up in in, in some type of a sin or, or to falsely accuse him. He answers them so wisely. He holds everything in perfect tension. They murmur and they go home and they're sitting again, ready to be taught by the Lord. See, the word of God settles all accounts. And I believe the word of God is going to settle accounts as we continue to read this passage. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, for those of you who don't know, what a scribe is, a scribe is someone who's a professional, basically, writer. They record Not just the Bible, okay? They record all kind of things. Scribes were used. um, The Egyptians hired scribes. They, they, They were just professional people who meticulously would copy word for word Every single thing of whatever they were hired to do. Now, obviously, in this context, these biblical scribes oftentimes were Pharisees. Okay, so a lot of Pharisees were scribes, but they but all Pharisees weren't scribes, but usually they were. And so these were the people that basically knew the word of God better. They knew it intellectually better than anyone else, but didn't always have a relationship, obviously, with the things they were reading. And so their hearts were not in the right place. And we're going to see that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. Who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? This they said to test him. They weren't really interested, they were testing Jesus And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. There is so much happening in this passage. But here's what's one of the most important things, and I want to read to you from, um, his name is Morris, and he is a, a theologian and scholar. Legally speaking, the standard of evidence was very high for this crime of adultery. There had to be two witnesses, and they had to agree perfectly. Lean in with me. Focus on this. They had to see that the sexual act, they had to see it take place. It wasn't enough to see the pair leaving the same room together or even lying in the same bed together. The actual physical act would need to be caught during this time. The the conditions were so stringent when you were going to have an accusation like this for it to be condemned for death. In the Jewish law, witnesses to the capital crime began with stoning. Jesus was basically saying, we may execute her, but we must do it correctly. Now let's talk about that. The fact that they caught her in adultery meant you can't be in adultery by yourself. Have you ever thought about this story from the context of who she was with? The woman wasn't, having, wasn't being caught in adultery by herself. She was with another man. But they didn't bring that man there. And a matter of fact, a lot of theologians and scholars believe that that man was also part of the whole plan to catch Jesus up in the sin. So this man is believed to be amongst the people that is sitting there throwing this woman on the floor saying, teacher, rabbi, we've caught this woman. It was a setup. It was a setup, they used this woman to catch up Jesus. And Jesus being perfect in holiness, knowing exactly the motives and heart of man is interacting with everything that they're doing. And so as the scribes and the Pharisees are in verse five, um, or, um, when we look to verse five, it says, Now in the law Moses commanded us to, say, to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And here's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to put him into two choices. If he says stone her, he looks like a super angry leader, and he's not. He has no grace and mercy, and he's contradicting some of the messages that he's shared on the, you know, at different points in the in the Bible specifically, like on the Sermon of the Mountain, different things. But if he but if he um, pardons her, then he breaks the law of Moses. So what do we do? What is Jesus going to do? And what do we learn as his people? So this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Oh, by the way, just a couple chapters before, um, they had tried to test him with this whole, with this money thing. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So Jesus was already saying, submit, submit to the law. And so they're trying to catch him up. They're like, we got him now. We got him now. Here, here. So Jesus bends down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. I love his response, which is a non-response. So often, our human nature, when we hear about someone who's done something wrong, is to immediately lash out, to immediately be angry. But we want to be marked as a people group, filled with radical grace, slow to speak, and abounding in steadfast love. I want to ask you a question today. When you interact with someone's sin, when they fall short of whatever standard that you have set before them, is your first response to condemn, to cast judgment, or to pause and to take a moment? So they continue to pressure Jesus, right? They're pressuring him, and, and, they're, and they're continuing. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? So he stood up, and he said this. Let him. Hey, you, all of you sitting here. Jesus knows that that man is there who is also caught in adultery. He's saying, hey, you hey, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In verse 9, it says this, but when they heard it, they went away because then they had to face the reality of their own sin. They were so focused on what this woman did that they weren't even interacting with how sinful they were. The motivation to try to catch this woman up in her sin jesus was going to have absolutely no part of it and he's calling them out for their sin we're going to get to the woman because jesus holds it all in perfect tension we're going to get to her in a minute i love this part they went away one by one beginning with the older ones you want to know why it started with the older ones because the older you are the more you know how far you have fallen short of the glory of God. You've lived long enough to know you are not that awesome. The older young people in here, the older you get, you will realize you are not that awesome. And that's why the oldest people that were sitting there reviling against this woman, they were the first ones to interact with guilt. And they walked away. And then it went from the older to the younger. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before them. I love that. Jesus is not about trying to put people on a stage. This isn't a show. The God of the universe has a gospel message that's filled with grace and mercy. And the point of what Jesus is doing is he wants your story to be redeemed. He wants your story to become his story. Right, We talked about that last week. He wants your story of, of guilt and shame to bec- become one where you're free in Jesus. That doesn't happen by trying to put someone on front street. And it was no accident that it's once everyone left that Jesus now addresses the woman. Hey, there's a time and a place for us as the people of God to lovingly rebuke our brothers and sisters. But we need to do that well. And we can remember how Jesus saved us. Amen? Amen? Is that true? When we say amen, it's like we're in agreement. Is that an amen moment? Amen? amen. amen. Okay, amen. That's I need God's grace. I need God's grace of mercy. And I want to be one that is extending that to other people. And so Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are all these people That are trying to condemn you. Has no one condemned you? In verse 11, I love it. No one, Lord. There is so much in those three words. No one, Lord. This is this woman interacting in the midst of her guilt and shame. Do you know how embarrassing and shameful you know, when I was a youth pastor for seven years, I used to always have these meetings in our little uh, element nights. They they're called the, our, our youth group is called the Elements. And sometimes the young men and the young women would say, I don't, every time I come to youth group, I love hearing the Bible. You, you make it so fun. You make it come to life. But when I go home, it's boring. Like it's really boring. I always fall asleep when I try to read it in the, in the bed. It's boring. And I'm like, If the Bible is boring, it's because you're not allowing it to become... You have to interact with it. you got to learn how to get in this story. People of God, put yourself in this woman's shoes. She was in a posture of continuing to sin. Someone broke into wherever she was engaging in this sin. She's been physically embarrassed. Can you imagine that? She's been dragged physically by grown men against her will across the town. She's bloody. She's dirty. Inside, she feels dirty. She's dirty on the outside. Can you imagine being manhandled by a, a posse of men, one of them, you entrusted in this intimate moment that seduced you to betray you? And then they're talking about you, and your life is on the line, depending on what this, this man, how he answers, the fear, the anxiety, the trembling going on in that moment. And she's watching Jesus. Now they've all left, and she's trembling. She's a, how many of you have been in that moment when you're like, I'm not worthy, God. I'm not worthy of your grace. I'm not worthy of your mercy. And there's that moment where there's no one else. It's you and it's God. What's going to happen? And Jesus leans in to this woman. He leans into your life. And he says, who's left to condemn you? She said, no one lord no one but she calls him lord (laughs) men and women children if we can remember that god is the lord of our lives in the midst of our most difficult moments he is actively ready and able to give us grace and mercy for our lives if we would trust him with that And here's Jesus' response. And this is the most important part of the text. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. Sin no more. Sin no more. What can we take away from what God did in this story for the woman caught in adultery? Hmm. You see, Jesus recognized that uh, what the woman had done was sin. Because he says right at the end, don't sin anymore. He's asking her to repent. He'll do the same for you and I. What, what areas in your life have you not surrendered to the God of the universe? Maybe it's not adultery. Maybe it's, maybe it's like you're holding your life really tight and you're trying to do it your way. Maybe there is some deep sin that you haven't dealt with. Hey, Hey, you can't live that way. Listen to me you cannot live with hidden sin you will die you will rot from the inside out children i need your eyes for a second i know these are long services for you and i thank you for leaning in with us as we're developing our children's ministry but i want you to know something holding secrets is not good it will make your heart hurt if you have things that you're stirring inside that you've done wrong God is giving you a mom and a dad, hopefully, or someone that loves you. You got to tell them and you got to tell God so you can be free from that. Hey, bigger children called us. (laughs) You can't survive that way. I'm going to be here when we're done in just a few moments. And I'm going to be praying with any father that would, if you're a father, please come up at the end. I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. We need to be prayed over. We need prayer. But if you have some sin in your life, man or woman, hey, I would love to walk with you and pray for God to just release you from that. And we can go on a journey in that. Because that's what Jesus is offering this woman. And he's offering that to us. He gave her hope. He gave her hope. He's like, go. Start your life. You know why he gave her that hope? Because he knew that she was going to need to recall that moment over and over and over and over again because her consequences are just getting started. The shame she's going to have to live with may be for the rest of her life, and she's going to be holding on to the words of Jesus to so this moment that says, you are not condemned. That is the gospel message. That is what we are marked by, a people that when people come in these doors— and they're going to come with different stories. We want to be a people that's marked by the gospel that says, Hey, we don't condemn you. Hey, when you walk in this door, it's an opportunity for you to start a new story, a God-centered story where, where hey, you don't have to keep sinning anymore. Amen? So here's three things that God's grace and the gospel does and it produces in us if we submit our lives to God. I want you to say these with me. We, um, humility and grace is delivered. Say, humility... And, grace, and is grace is delivered. Is delivered. Amen. Humil- humility and grace is delivered. That's what the gospel will do in you and through you if you allow it. The second thing is it'll produce all filled worship. Say, all filled worship. We want to be a people group that has an all filled worship that says, God, I'm fully acknowledging that I've fallen short. I'm acknowledging that I sin, and your, your radical grace and mercy upon my life causes me to have an all-filled worship, God. I don't deserve you, but I'm so thankful to have you. And finally, it produces a spirit of generosity, Say, a spirit of generosity. Spirit of generosity. That's where we're going next week. If you have truly met the God of the universe like I have, listen to me, I'm not go to church. I'm not talking about reading the Bible. I'm not talking about doing good deeds. And I'm not talking about having an emotional experience at your Bible study, at your retreat, or at church. If you've had a living encounter with the God of the universe, and he has wrested you from your sin and your shame, And your story has truly become God's story. You are marked by humility and grace and worship and a spirit of generosity. And next week, next week, we're going to look at what that looks like to be a people that's marked by generosity. And I hope that you're going to be here with us next week as we continue on and we learn these things from the Bible. Let's bow our heads. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for these men and women, and I pray that we might digest the multitude of words that have been put together in all these sentences that we call scripture in this glorious book called the Bible. I pray that you would let this exhortation settle into a real deep place of our soul and that you'd cause us to be a people that are marked by radical grace for others and that we would accept that radical grace that you've provided for our own lives, Lord. It's so hard to receive your mercy and grace. Lord, compel the people here at Redemption City to not abuse and waste this gift of grace. I pray that we would move on from a performance-based Christianity that would have us continuing to spin our wheels, but not really enjoying the inner realities of who you are. Lord, cause us to have a relationship that's defined by the gospel, permeating with your love and your grace across our lives. And I pray that, you, Lord, we would admit to you when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our own sin like Jesus did with the woman caught in adultery. Because, Lord, I, I honestly don't know how our decision in Christ And ultimately, our salvation can be authentic if we really don't admit right now that we are broken and that we are sinners. And apart from you, we have no shot. We are struggling with our sin, God. You are good and beautiful and right and glorious. And I pray with all my heart that I've done a good enough job this morning communicating your word faithfully. I pray that in our interactions after service that we would enjoy each other's fellowship, even for just a few moments. I pray that you would be with us throughout the week, that you would cause us to lean into your word and to go further and to see what you might have for us in this story with the woman caught in adultery, with Exodus, um, with Moses on the mountain. And I pray that as we get ready to worship you one last time and we lift our voices, that we would do so not because we have to, but because we get to, and we have this opportunity to have all-field worship. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.